<clears throat> Good evening, everybody. Welcome to church. Again, I'll add my welcome to Pastor Josh's. So glad that you are here tonight to worship our God and King in this place. As Josh said, definitely take advantage of that QR code. If you are newer to our church, we'd love to connect with you. That would be fantastic. Um, <clears throat> I'll say uh, I was sad. I missed last week, and that was kind of unexpected. We had some illness in the house, and so that kept me away from church. But I, I missed you guys. was sad not to be here, but I'm glad that we've generally worked through it, except for, you know, as I'm saying that, my voice sounds all raspy, so hopefully uh, <clears throat> I don't keep, you know, clearing my throat awkwardly throughout my sermon. But uh, glad to be back and mostly fully in, engaged and, uh, and healthy again. So all that said, uh, in terms of God's word and the preaching of it here tonight, we are continuing on in the book of Romans. And we are picking up right where Pastor Josh left off last week at the end of chapter 11 of Romans. And that, that means we're looking at just three, or I'm sorry, four verses, verses 33 through 36 tonight. So <clears throat> let's go ahead and stand as we're able, and we will hear God's word together. <clears throat> All right, so the word of God, book of Romans, chapter 11, picking up in verse 33 says this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. Remain standing. And let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, God, you are good. Lord, as we have already sang tonight, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts in this place, be pleasing in your sight, because you indeed are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Right. So, church, as you can see on the slide and also in your bulletins, I have entitled the message today, Bursting at the Seams. And the reason for that title is because I think most fundamentally, at, at the heart, at the core, this section of, of God's Word, this section of Scripture, is first and foremost, above anything else, an expression of awe. From the Apostle Paul. It's an expression of awe. It's an outburst of amazement. Of, it's a statement of wonder and of worship. We might even say doxology. At who God is. At how God works. And how he has moved in human history. To rescue and to redeem a people for himself, for his own name, and for his own glory. It's an expression of awe at all of that. Uh, if you remember from last week, if you were here, or if you caught uh, the podcast maybe online uh, on our website, uh, that Pastor Josh gave us a really, I think, helpful review of where we have been in this book up to this point last week. 
<clears throat> and, uh, you know, if you have some of that knowledge in your head from last week or just know the book of Romans generally, then you might have uh, very easily be able to kind of connect the dots and answer the question of, okay, why is this outburst, why is this expression of awe coming at this moment, at this point in this letter? And so if, if you, you know, just to jog our memory, memory, you might recall that what Paul has been doing for the last three chapters or so is that he has been tracking his way through salvation history. He's been working to answer a really important question. And the question he's been working to answer is this question that Josh has highlighted for us several times, highlighted it again last week, is, is God trustworthy? Does God keep his promises? Has he kept his promises, especially as we think about the context of Old Testament Israel, the promises that were made to them, especially as we look at Paul's moment where Jesus, the Messiah, has come on the scene and many of those who are God's Old Testament people, the Jews, are not embracing him as the Messiah? Is God keeping his promises that they would be his people? And so Paul is processing through all of this. He's working through this question, processing through salvation history. And the answer that Paul has come to again and again, over and over, that we've seen in the text is yes. Yes, indeed. God has kept his word in the past. He is continuing in the present, and he will continue into the future to act in accordance with his word, to be faithful to accomplish his purposes for his people and for all the earth. And so it's after all of this deep kind of processing of of history and kind of reasoning through what's going on with the gospel in the world that it seems like Paul, laying all that on the table now, has reached this point, and it seems like his spirit is just full. Processing through all of this, his spirit is full, his mind is as he's been thinking about these realities of God's redemption and how it's broken into the world and what's been going on. His heart is full and it's flowed out into his pen as he's writing this letter to these believers in Rome, to this church in Rome. It's like his mind, his his heart, his pen can't help but kind of burst out, right? It's bursting at the seams with awe and doxology and worship at who God is. Why? Because at the heart of all of these things, we see that the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is truly awesome. He is awesome. He is a God who is awe-inducing and awe-inspiring. Not in the kind of cliche way that we often use the word awesome, like, oh, we're having pizza tonight. Awesome. No, God is truly the apex of awesomeness. I think that's really the heart and the center of these verses that we are looking at tonight, the awesomeness of God. And Paul's spirit is full, bursting at the seams with the reality of God's awesomeness. So I think of and thought of this week, this idea of bursting at the seams. Uh, one of the images that I was thinking through was uh, the picture of uh, the reality of like a hot air balloon, which is why I have that little background on, on the screen there. 
And, you know, I was thinking about how a hot air balloon, without, like, that critical key ingredient of hot air, is basically just, just a mass of material lying on the ground. It's just, it's just a bunch of, it's like a nylon blanket on the ground. And yet, when you fill up that balloon with that hot air, what happens? That, that balloon, that material can't help it but just lift up, take off, right? Take, in, take, take off into the sky. It's natural. I think that is uh, an analogy for what is going on as I'm thinking about it, for what Paul is describing, what's going on in this portion of Romans. <clears throat> so I think uh, still about this idea, bursting at the seams, I also thought of some biblical examples where we see people who are so kind of uh, filled up and so caught up in the awesomeness of God that they just can't help but do certain things. One example that uh, I was processing a little bit this week was in the book of Acts. Early on, you have Peter and John, and these are guys, you know, this is post-Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and Peter and John are just proclaiming. They're out there talking about Jesus. They're talking about the resurrection. And because of that, they are attracting attention and some of it hostile attention. Right? And they're getting into some hot water with the, the religious leaders of the day. Some of them, these Jews who have not embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And so what ends up happening, they end up threatening P- Peter and John and they say, hey guys, no more. Stop it. Like, do not talk about Jesus. Do not talk about the resurrection. Do not do this anymore. There will be consequences if you do. What is the response? Peter, of course, speaks up and he says, listen, hey, whether it is right, this is uh, Acts 4, chapter chapter 4, verse 19. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. But then he says, but know this, as far as us, as far as we are concerned, we cannot help but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. We can't help it, right? We can't help but speak because, you know, we're bursting at the seams with the news of Jesus, of his resurrection, of his gospel, of his kingdom that has come in and through Jesus, the Messiah, We see this in the life of Paul as we look at the story of Acts continuing on as well. Same thing where Paul himself, even though he he is rejected, his gospel is rejected multiple times as we see going through the, the book of Acts. He gets beat up, he gets thrown out of places, and yet he keeps coming back. He keeps going in, keeps doing it, keeps bringing the gospel. Why? Because I think Paul has been so awestruck by the Lord and by the gospel that he can't help it. He's got to proclaim it. He's got to tell it. It just keeps coming out of him. He is full of it. He's bursting at the seams. I wonder, what does that look like in our lives here today? Have you ever been awestruck? Can you think of what it has looked like in those moments where you've been really awestruck by Christ, by the gospel, and what, what is that manifested? What has that looked like? What has that sounded like in your life? Has it resulted in falling on your face? 
Has it resulted in being on your knees? Has it resulted in lifting your hands? What, is it, what does that look like? I, I think uh, I was thinking about it for myself, these moments where I'm thinking, processing God's faithfulness, his word, sometimes maybe when I'm on a run, and it's just like spirit exulting in that moment, right? Praise God for his faithfulness. You know, even like we just prayed that prayer of confession, right? Thank God for his mercy. Just moving your body and exalting him for who he is and what he has done. Maybe it's some kind of art that comes out of you in praise and response when you are filled up with the awesomeness of God. What does that look like? What has it looked like in your life? I think one takeaway for all of us here as we think about what Paul is saying in these verses is that I think true expressions of awe, these kind of reactions of doxology happen in our lives when our limited and very finite human natures, our, our minds, our hearts, which are finite and limited, crash into, come up against the non-finite, unlimited nature of a holy, holy, holy God. I think that's when these expressions of awe and worship and doxology kind of burst out of us, is when our limitedness meets, meets God's unlimitedness. And sometimes those moments are confusing and hard. Like, for example, when they start just even reading God's word, we might run into something where it doesn't quite make sense to us. It seems challenging. Maybe it even pushes against some of our assumptions of what seems right or fair. And yet those can be the moments where we acknowledge, hey, I'm going to let God be God. He can be God, and I can just worship and praise him for who he is and what he's done and the fact that he is faithful to his promises. I think a lot of this, these expressions, this worship, all of this stuff, it starts with the word. Knowing who God is as he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. Letting that fuel our hearts unto worship, doxology, and praise. So take that maybe as a bit of a side point encouragement, application point, as, uh, as we are rolling still kind of into a new year, 2023. If you don't have like a, a Bible reading plan, right? not for the sake of religiosity or checking a box, but for the sake of filling, being filled up with the awesomeness of God. Maybe, you know, figure out a, new, a plan, you know. What are you going to be studying? What, where are you going to be in the scriptures this year? Think about that. Okay, so all of that just kind of setting our course here a little bit. For the next few moments, really what I want to do in zooming in on these four verses that I read earlier, what I want us to do is observe these verses and see that in them we find fairly quickly, I think fairly obviously, three particular aspects of who God is. Three particular, you might call them attributes of God that seem to be really the fuel and the root of a lot of Paul's, uh, you know, his expression of awe that we're seeing here. Like, what's at the root of it? Three things that we see. So I just want to walk through them one at a time fairly quickly. So if you're still with me, number one, you with me? All right, so number one is knowledge. Knowledge. The knowledge of God. Verse 33, we see Paul writes, he's reflecting on this reality. It starts, 
uh, with this exclamation of, oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Verse 33. And then we also see there's kind of this parallel structure. So down in verse 34, we see these uh, three, between verse 34 and 35, these three rhetorical questions. And the first one is this question of, for who has known the mind of the Lord? So you see the connection there. He's talking about, you know, the depth of the knowledge, and then he's reflecting on the mind of the Lord. In other words, Paul, Paul is expressing here his awe, at least in part, because our God is a God of mind-blowing knowledge. God is, as, you know, not to overuse the word, but God is awesome. In, in his knowledge. As we consider uh, some of the most fundamental realities and think about what is it that even makes God, God? What, what is it that makes God who he is and worthy of worship? One of those fundamental truths and realities is this, uh, this truth that we, that we see. Theologians will use the term omniscience. God's omniscience. What does that mean? It means God knows all things. Omni, it means all. Right. So God knows everything. He is perfect in knowledge, complete in knowledge, not lacking one, one ounce, one iota of knowledge, of all the knowledge, all the data, everything that is out there. Think about that. Like, take that in for a moment, and I, and I think that might kind of start to blow your mind. Like, think about just every field of study. Think about every area of science. Just, just, what's your favorite? Biology, astronomy, chemistry, astrophysics. I don't know. Like, whatever it is, God knows it all. Every detail of it. Every mystery of the earth every mystery of the universe. It's not a mystery to the Lord. He knows it all. He sees it all. It's all in his scope and in his view. I think this truth of God's knowledge, uh, actually, it's, it's kind of one of those truths that like gets really, really big, but then it also gets really, really small. Because it's grand, it's amazing, it's all of these things, but then it also gets super personal. Especially we think about the scriptures. I was thinking this week about places where Jesus is speaking. Like, for example, in Matthew 10, where Jesus says, he's talking about sparrows. And he says, hey, you know, not one sparrow can fall to the ground without your Father in heaven knowing about it. And then he gets even more intimate and he says, and do you know that even the hairs of your head are all numbered? All the hairs of your head. Think about that from the perspective of, like, knowledge. Like, presently, right now, how many hairs do you think are on your head? I don't know. Right? But, but God knows. It's like, oh, there goes number 5,627. Sometimes they come out in droves. Right? Some of us, the count is a lot higher than others. You know, like, we don't need to go into all these details. But, but this is intimate knowledge. Right? That God has of his creation, of us, of our bodies. Things that are mysterious to us. And in the midst of that, Jesus' words are fear not. Right? 
Fear not because you're more valuable than sparrows. I know about sparrows. You are more valuable than sparrows. I know about you. I know your stuff. Not to belabor the point, but I think also of Psalm 56. It's a Psalm of David. David is talking about, uh, well, he's reflecting. He's been captured. The note on the Psalm says, captured by Philistines. He's in Gath. And he talks there, verse 8, Psalm 56, about you have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows. He sees the tears. He's perfect in his knowledge. Again, that very first word out the gate is, oh, the depth of this knowledge. Right? The depth. Uh, thinking about depth this week, I did a little, little bit of reading about, uh, you guys know the, the Mariana Trench? You guys know, know that? Yeah, it's a, you know, the, the deepest point that we know of in the ocean. I was reading about this this week, and uh, one of the little factoids uh, I learned about it, thinking about depth, was that you could sink Mount Everest down to the, to the bottom point of the Mariana Trench, and there would still be, at, from the peak of Mount Everest, a mile of water before you got to the surface. That's depth. That is, that is deep waters. And how much deeper still is the knowledge of God? He is in, infinite in his knowledge. He's got it all. Locked in. God is perfect in his knowledge. And that, that plays out as he's orchestrating history. As he is orchestrating the, the, the plan of redemption, salvation, that Paul is in the middle of, that we are still in the middle of. So I encourage you, reflect on this truth, friends. Reflect on this reality and let this reality fill you with awe at God for his awesome knowledge. Secondly, move along God's wisdom. Second aspect of who God is that should fuel awe in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. Again, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom. The wisdom of God. Again, also we see this, this parallelism happening, so it comes down to verse 34. The second rhetorical question where he's pulling from Isaiah, kind of reflecting Isaiah 40, and he says, uh, well, for who has known the mind of the Lord, and then, or who has been his counselor? His counselor. Why do, uh, as people, human beings, question, right? Why do we seek out counseling? Why do we need counsel? Often because we're lacking in wisdom. We need some kind of wisdom. We need some kind of perspective. So wisdom and counsel go together. Uh, we think about this, we see this a lot popping up in the Psalms, uh, not, sorry, forgive me, not the Psalms, the Proverbs. Solomon himself, likely the wisest man who's ever lived, writing these Proverbs, one example, Proverbs 24, verse 6. Solomon writes, For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in an abundance of counselors there is victory. So you see, Solomon, in his mind, he's connecting counselors, wisdom, they go together, parallel concepts. And that's what we're seeing in our text as well. These parallel ideas kind of going together. 
And so just as God is perfect in knowledge, we see also that God is perfect in wisdom. He is complete and awesome in his wisdom. We see that, you know, wisdom is not only a part of this doxology here at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, but there's actually another doxology at the very true end of the book in Romans 16. And just to prove that this is not just a passing fancy for Paul, just this kind of momentary thought about, oh, God's wise. But again, in that final doxology in the book of Romans in chapter 16, once again, we see uh, Paul reflecting these amazing truths it starts in verse 25. I, I, can't, I won't read all of it, but it goes all the way down to verse 27 of chapter 16. And in there, right at verse 27, so he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, to do all these amazing things, to the only wise God. The wisdom of God is, is central to Paul's doxology, to, to Paul's worship, right? To his expressions of awe when, it, when, it come, when they flow out of him. Still again, I think we would be largely uh, missing, missing it, missing the mark, missing the point if we were to forget and not mention the fact that the, the pinnacle expression, the, the ultimate manifestation of God's wisdom we see in God's word is, of course, who? You can say it, the Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? The ultimate expression of God's wisdom is Jesus himself. Paul reflects on this very explicitly in 1 Corinthians. He, Paul is he's thinking through chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, human wisdom, comparing and contrasting that with the wisdom of God. And he says, at that, uh, well, I'll pick up in verse 20. He asks a question. He says, I'll, I'll read a bit of it. Paul asks, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He asks. He goes on, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. Goes on, for Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and what? The wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and his weakness is stronger than men. So in God's perfect wisdom, Jesus becomes our Savior. Jesus becomes the Redeemer in God's perfect, wise plan. Again, I would say, reflect on this reality. Reflect on the wisdom of God in salvation. Reflect on the wisdom of God manifest in Christ. And see if that does not fill you with awe. And begin to kind of burst you at the seams with who he is. It's knowledge and affections together. It's not one or the other. It's, it's deep. <laughs> so we see uh, this fuel this, for this expression of I. It's, it's the knowledge. It's the wisdom. Lastly, finally here, it's a reflection on God's riches. The riches of God. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of God. 
Paul says. And then again, we see the parallelism. He links it down, verse 35 this time, where the, the uh, parallel idea is uh, Paul, or, yeah, Paul pulling this idea from Job 41, where the word says, and the, and the question this time is, who has given a gift to him, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? The idea there is, uh, you know, what finite human being, what, what limited person, m- mere mortal has given a gift to the Lord that that mere mortal human being person might be repaid by God? And of course, the answer to this question, as to all of the rhetorical questions, is there isn't anyone. No one. I think Paul is making the point here that no one can ever put God in their debt. It is not possible to put God in your debt. Why? Well, because of the depth of God's riches. You could think of the depth of God's riches, the height, the breadth of God's riches. I think it includes both physical things, God's riches, physical things, and spiritual things. All things are his. He's the creator. He is the sustainer. Thinking about physical riches for a moment, in the earth, I think of Psalm 50, where Paul writes, I'm sorry, Psalm 50 is not written by Paul. That's anachronistic. Anachronistic, that's the word, right? Okay. Uh, Anyway, Psalm 50, uh, Psalm of Asaph, to be accurate. Um, But it's this prophetic psalm where the psalm writer is, uh, is writing from the perspective of God. And from the perspective of God, the psalm writer says, hey, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Verse 11, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the fields. All of it is mine. This is God's perspective. So all, all the riches of the earth, the animal kingdom, creation itself, it's all his. Think of spiritual riches. We might think of Paul's own words as we think about the gift, the free gift he gives of grace. The gift of justification that comes by grace and through faith. The spiritual riches of salvation in Jesus' name that is given to us. Right? That, that's not, we, we accept that, we receive that, we cannot then flip that on his head and then put God in our debt somehow. It's what Paul is getting at back in Romans 3 where he says, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by his grace as a gift. God himself is the giver. Anything we give to God ultimately is something that we are giving back to him that is already his. Because everything is his. Every precious thing in your life, every priceless thing, even other people, those are his, those are good things, gifts of God. And so we think on God's riches given to us, physical, spiritual, in this world. We think especially about how God gifts his riches to us. And as we do that, I think this truth too, this third reality, this one also becomes fuel for awe in our lives. Who God is, what he has done, 
what he is going to continue to do in accordance with his word and his promises. He is awesome in his knowledge, his wisdom, his riches. Verse 36, Paul kind of puts a bow on this whole section of his letter. And he says this, he says, for from him, through him, and to him, from God, through God, and to God are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He's saying God is the giver, he's the mediator, and he is the king. And if God is all of those things, the question then comes to us, and it's, who are we? What does that make us? If God is the giver, the mediator, the king, who are we? I think what, what this means, what this makes us, is, is that we hopefully are those who become awestruck stewards, humble, grateful servants of a God who is truly awesome. Not in a cliche way, but in, in the ultimate way, awesome. We reflect on these things that cause us to burst at the seams. How wonderful is it that we get to know through his word, by his grace, this God? How great is it that we get to serve this God? From here on out in the letter, this is kind of a hinge moment, starting in verse, or sorry, starting in chapter 12 through to the end of the book, Paul is going to get a little bit more practical and talk about the implications of the gospel and kind of spell this out in terms of, okay, if God it really is, if all things are from him and through him and to him, what are the implications for our lives from here? And that'll be where he's heading from here. But for now, oh, the depth, right? Let's sit in that. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? No one. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Pray together. Father in heaven, God, thank you that you are a good, gracious, awesome God who gives wonderful, gracious gifts. Lord, this table that we are about to partake of together is one of those gifts. Prepare our hearts for that now, I pray. Amen.